Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley. And my name's Rick Bardy. And today we're looking at the latest highlights from the issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. So Rick, you have done a fantastic introduction to the journal. This is the primary survey you'll find at the beginning of the print journal. You'll find it free online. You'll find a number of other free papers online. So if you're not listening to the EMJ all the time, get onto the web. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, follow us everywhere. Look at the website, you'll see some great research there. But Rick, there are a couple of things that you highlighted this month. So you've looked at the burden of alcohol in the emergency department. This is not a great surprise, Rick. There has been a burden of alcohol in the emergency department for a number of years, but something's caught your eye. So there's a really nice uh, cohort study from Catherine Parkinson in the EMJ this month, which took a quite an interesting approach really. There was a retrospective component and there was a prospective component and they were looking at how many attendances at the emergency department were attributable to alcohol. And some of the findings might not come as too much of a surprise. Uh, particularly between 2 and 3 a.m. we were seeing a peak of alcohol related attendances. But Rick, did they put in that it was a staggering number of alcohol related attendances or is that you? Staggering alcohol? That is me. It's good. I like it. They should keep that. Keep that. So staggering numbers of alcohol attendances between two and three. It is a problem. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, it was no pun intended, actually, with that one. But it clearly achieved it anyway. Uh, yeah, so we, so we saw lots of alcohol-related attendances between two and three a.m. in particular. It's a really nice, nice, interesting methodology for the prospective part of this study where they actually breathalyzed patients who attended the emergency department to see if they had any alcohol in their system. And they found that, particularly on Friday and Saturday, between 2 and 3 a.m., an amazing 71.9% of all attendances were alcohol-related. So it's accounting for very much the majority of our workload during those times. Now, that might not come as a surprise to anyone who works in emergency medicine, but it's at least quantified the problem. What was really interesting is that they then went on to quantify the cost of that. And if you look at the cost of the patients who required admission, it cost us £851 as a mean cost. That's a pretty expensive night out on the National Health Service. And there were lots of these patients that were admitting. So it's a big public health problem for us. Mm. Public health and economic, of course. Absolutely. And if you read this issue of the journal, you can see our college president, Cliff Mann, discussing this problem, the implications of the findings of this study and what we might do about it. And he addresses everything from alcohol pricing to licensing hours, which, as we all know, have changed a lot over the last decade, and how that might be affecting uh, our workload in the emergency department. Okay, so alcohol, a constant big problem, an everyday problem. And that takes us on to something which is not an everyday problem, something we've covered on the St. Emlyn's blog, which we're also involved in a number of times, and that's the rare events in medicine. And this particular one, which I find terrifying, I'm sure most emergency physicians find potentially terrifying, and that's the prospect of having to do a perimortem C-section. So a mother in the third trimester or later on in pregnancy who comes in in cardiac arrest and you have to make a decision and then actually deliver a child, do a hysterotomy, get in there, deliver the child. Very, very difficult thing to think about even now. Tremendously difficult thing to do. This is one of the great challenges we face as emergency physicians. We get lots of things we see every day, but we have to be prepared for these really rare events that are so important. And there's nothing more important than a mother who's in cardiac arrest and dealing with that problem. We all know we've got to get the baby out quickly. Very few of us have had actual first-hand experience of doing that 
procedure, a perimortem caesarean section. In this issue of the journal, Richard Parry takes us through a very nice how-to guide. He explains in 25 stages how to go through this emergency procedure and how to do it quickly and smartly. 25 steps seems like an awful lot, Rick. It is a lot, but I think um, it's quite nice to at least familiarise yourself with that. Now, we might not learn every, all of the 25 steps involved in a procedure so that in three years' time when we're faced with this scenario, we can recall them instantly, but it's the process of familiarisation, of going through these things, mentally rehearsing them. I think every emergency physician needs to read this piece and the piece at St Emlyn's so that they're familiar with this procedure for when it actually happens. Um, Cliff Reed, who's um, a great friend of ours, works out in Sydney, talks about the use of simulation for doing this. And what's really nice when Cliff talks about it, he talks about how to do simulation with models and things like that, but he talks about the greatest simulator known to man, which is you read something like this, you close your eyes, you think about it, you think, what would I do in my department? How would I run this through? You use the greatest, most expensive, high-fidelity simulator in the world, your brain. So please, read this, simulate it in your head, and then hopefully never do it. Exactly, and I think it's really important that every emergency physician does read it. Okay, then we're on to more critical care. Um, ultrasound, big fans of ultrasound. We're big fans of ultrasound here in Manchester. But ultrasound confirming the central line placement. Now, I've used ultrasound for years for putting lines in, but I've not used it to confirm placement. How do you do that? Well, this is one of the great inconveniences of critical care medicine in the resource room, isn't it? We insert a central line and we can usually do that pretty quickly and efficiently with ultrasound guidance. And then we have to wait for chest x-ray to confirm the placement and the chest x-ray can take a while. In this very nice study the authors looked at the accuracy of ultrasound confirmation of the placement of the central line. They also looked at the times confirming the placement with ultrasound and with chest x-ray and there was a big difference as you might expect. So the chest x-ray took a median of 23.8 minutes longer to confirm line placement than the ultrasound. That's a heck of a long time when you've got a critically ill patient and you're not really sure whether you can use that line and where it might be. Well, that's a big debate, of course, about whether or not you can use a line if you don't know exactly where it is and all that kind of stuff. But there are some people who are very strict about this and want you know, formal confirmation. So um, this is using the ultrasound line and you flush the ultrasound line, don't you? And you see if you can see that flushing coming through. And how good is that? What's the performance of that? One of the key limitations of the study is that there were only a small number of line misplacements. In fact, only four lines were misplaced. And of those four misplacements, the ultrasound detected three of them. So it had a sensitivity of 75%. Now, based on this evidence, we're not going to say that an ultrasound scan rules in correct placement or rules out incorrect placement. But it's an interesting technique, one that we we can use, maybe develop, maybe look at further in future research. And uh, the technique, as you say, involves this saline flush. So you simply do a rapid flush of saline and then you ultrasound to uh, see the uh, swirling effect of the saline as it enters the uh, bitatrium. Okay, so one of those little tips, and I know that there are people out there using this in practice, but they're using it in practice based on ideas, and I think it's good to get some research out there. And as you say, the 75% sensitivity is based on a small number, so maybe an area where we need to see a little bit more research, I think. Interesting. I think so, because the confidence intervals will be very wide around that yeah. with just four cases. So not necessarily for prime time, but certainly want to think about. 
Um, right, back onto real-world emergency medicine again. Frequent use of the ED. Um, in the UK, we have performance targets, don't we? So well, I don't know whether they call them targets this week. Standards, I suspect. But returning patients are a particular issue for us. And frequent attenders can actually make up a significant proportion of your entire year's worth of, of attenders. And I'm sure that many people out there will know um, a group of their patients very well because they'll be seeing them sometimes even daily. And they're often a very difficult, well not difficult, very often a very tragic group of patients with multiple health needs who have a lot that we can do for them, but they don't always get it. And this is a nice paper looking at those frequent attenders, not from a purgative perspective, but from a more of an understanding perspective, which I think is really important. Yeah, and I think it can be quite tempting sometimes to greet these patients with a bit of cynicism when they've been in every day, sometimes twice a day. Perhaps we consider that they're not making the best use of pre-hospital resources, calling ambulances. Perhaps we think that they might be wasting our time in the emergency department. I hope that never happens. I hope you never do that. Um, But I, I think there's a temptation to feel that way. In this systematic review, the authors have identified how sick these people really are. And in fact, in five out of the six studies that they identified looking at mortality, they showed that these frequent attendees have a higher mortality compared to anybody else. In fact, the median odds ratio for mortality was 2.2 among frequent attendees. What this is telling us is that this is actually quite a high risk group of patients. We should never be cynical about them. We always need to give them a careful evaluation because they are actually more likely to die than other patients that we see. They're a very challenging group perhaps because of some of their own behaviours, perhaps because they might be more likely to have uh, alcohol problems, addiction problems, they might be homeless. Uh, There are all sorts of problems that might make things a bit more challenging for us, but certainly this is telling us quite clearly that those patients are people that we need to be very careful with. They deserve a careful evaluation every single time. I agree completely. They're a vulnerable group and Far too many people have not assessed them well and things have gone wrong and that's a tragedy for absolutely everybody involved. So a big message out there, if you're starting off in your emergency medicine, take time with the frequent attenders and if you're a senior in emergency medicine, then make sure that the right things are being done. Okay, so finally, in the primary survey this month, there's more in the journal, you should go and read it, but finally in terms of the primary survey, You've got a procedural sedation, which is something which I've grown up with in my career, really. It didn't really happen that much when I started. We maybe gave a bit of midazolam and morphine, but it's now become considerably better researched. It's considerably better practised and recorded. But there's a nice piece this month with Gavin Lloyd, who's done a lot of work on procedural sedation, some great research down there, and Alistair Gray, looking at whether or not we're measuring the right things with the sort of research that we've done in the past and whether or not we're actually doing effective procedural sedation. So an interesting sort of philosophical standpoint on this. Yeah, a really nice piece that gets us to think about our practice with regard to something we do every day, procedural sedation. Uh, I think we probably, in emergency medicine, get so much exposure to this that most of us feel fairly confident. Yes, but not necessarily competent, really. Exactly, and it's true. In, in terms of assessing competence, we might this calls us on to perhaps look at other ways of assessing our competence, not just asking our colleagues and congratulating ourselves on a successful procedure without any complications, but perhaps going back to the patient and asking them how they felt about it. I don't know how many people do that. 
there's certainly been times when I haven't gone back to patients and asked them how it was for them. But uh, Alistair Gray and Gavin Lloyd are calling us on really to perhaps seek the feedback from patients to find out did they actually feel pain during the procedure? Do they remember it? Is it as we think it is? That they're blissfully unaware and this amazing dream of induced by propofol or actually are they feeling quite a bit of discomfort during the procedure? Yes and then you've come across the term PROMS I'm sure which is used in research which relates to um, patient related outcome measures. I think sometimes people think that it's physician related outcome measures and this is a real call to arms to make sure that we are talking about patient outcomes. I think it's a really good point and actually could be applicable to many of the other things that we do in emergency medicine. Yeah and there's another point that they call us on to think about which is to consider how we explain the procedure to patients. So the Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland has written a report which dissuades physicians from telling patients that they'll be put off to sleep, for example, when we do procedural sedation. It's not really true, they'll be talking to us. We shouldn't falsely reassure them that they won't remember anything because we think that quite a proportion of patients actually will remember something. So try not to be too falsely reassuring when you're explaining these procedures to patients. Great. So lots and lots in the journal this month, lots and lots to think about, and thank you very much for that. Again, recommendation, go read the journal, go look at the website, follow us on Twitter, there's a Facebook page. We are the most followed, I think, journal amongst the BMJ group, so EMJ and emergency physicians and clinicians. You like your social media, so you like your podcasts, and you'll hopefully hear from you soon. Thank you very much, Simon. Take care. See ya.